Welcome to Pure Hustle Podcast. I'm Mike. And this is Orlando. And we're on episode 102. Yeah. I still, I'm still shocked that we're on over the hundreds. Uh, it's amazing. It's a cool feeling to be at. And uh, I'm super excited that uh, it's still going, right? Like we're still going and it's, it's, <laughs> we're still here. Yeah, we're still here. No. People still listen. Yeah. And I, I feel like uh, the content is just going to keep getting better and more relevant and more, um, you know, useful as we go and grow. Right. And, and, Hopefully that our listeners are gaining more and more out of it and our listener base continues to increase, which is great. So the bigger this community gets, the better, the better it's it's gonna be. So um and today we're talking about using emotions to increase uh profit, right? Yeah. I guess I guess we could call we can we can we can clickbait it that title. I mean it's not even No, no, it's true. It's it's hundred percent true. It just I love how you phrase that. Yeah. By the way, I gotta give props to Mike. Mike has a migraine right now, and usually we don't like to share our pains and struggles on the air, but Mike, Mike, he's, he's intense. Like we're going to get this done. Yeah. We're not going to split the difference. No, we're going to make it happen. Yeah. This is happening. So today we're doing, <laughs> uh, we're doing chapter three of, uh, never split the difference. And I think we're going to be a little bit more realistic going into chapter three. We've gone into the last few episodes thinking we were going to like pound through two or three episodes at once. But so I'm wondering, how do you guys feel about it? I, I want to know in the comments. Sure. Like, are you okay if you know, I our goal was to have what two episodes per book, right? Right, and we, we kind of met that. I think was there one book that we went three? It might have been there Cardone. One that, yeah, one we did ten X rule, and so this one, there's so much content packed into one chapter that we find that we can't go longer unless we do like a marathon, never split the difference, ten hour Gary V in Dubai kind of episode, right? If you guys know what I'm talking about, and nobody I'm not, has any idea what you're talking about. No, Gary V did a ten hour vlog. No, it was like twelve hours, like. It was just on YouTube, like him in Dubai for 12 hours. And I'm sure it was all as in-depth as the stuff that was talked about in here. <laughs> no, I know, but, but you know. Consider serious psychological analysis of, of people and evaluations but, of how emotions can work in, in life and I, utilizing But I, I will tell advantage. you, I am leaning towards us having some kind of marathon episode. This is the second time we brought it up. We brought it up in the live. I brought it up. You, didn't, you haven't brought it up at all. And I can tell right now, I see your eyes looking at me and you're like, this isn't happening. But. I think it'd be really cool. Let us know in the comments below. Yeah. I mean, what Orlando is really wanting is he wants someone to just have a camera on him for 24 hours and so you can watch like absolutely everything. You know, no, you don't not want to know everything. My life is so boring. I can't even tell you how boring my life is. Yeah, that's Especially okay. right now with Amazon and all that. All right. So, but you know, it's not boring. Yes. Chapter three of Never Split 100%. the Difference by Chris Voss. Um, so just a quick... Um, you know, recap of, of what we've talked about. I mean, I'm not going to go over all the, the details, but uh, Never Split the Difference is a book by Chris Voss, who is a former um, FBI negotiator. He's dealt with terrorists, um, both foreign and domestic, and dealing with um, hostage situations and and talking people out of very, very intense situations. And so he uses his expertise with those experiences and kind of um, went to additional schooling at Harvard and other places where they kind of learned how negotiating works. Uh, and he realized that the skills and, and tools that they learned and used and honed in the FBI um, actually kind of transfer very well into the business world and just a, a everyday life. And like we've talked about multiple times, one of the reasons we enjoy this book so much is it's a lot like um, like we've mentioned like a marriage counseling book or, or relationship books or other books because it really breaks down how it, it all comes down to communication and understanding communication well. Um, and, and this isn't just like a tips on how to communicate, but like this chapter specifically 
is how do you like how can you take situations and and understand people's emotions check your own emotions and then use that in order to get the upper hand in a negotiation or to develop stronger relationships and things like that and i think it's important to note that it's never split the difference so it's, we're not talking about compromise we're talking about you taking it all right right that's a huge difference i remember earlier on when we were discussing this book i'm thinking about you know a mediation session or you know, you're going through arbitration, you're trying to walk away. And usually both parties are unhappy. Right. Right. I mean, I, you've, I've always heard, I have a few friends that are lawyers and they tell me, you know, mediation, arbitrations always work when both parties are unhappy when they leave. That means they actually came up with a compromise. Chris Voss is arguing for no compromise. You win. And not, not that they lose, but they don't get anything that they were hoping for. Well, I don't, I don't even think that's fair to say. I think you got to qualify with the situation where Okay, it's, yeah, it's that's, not a that's in a bank robbery situation, right? So it's 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 not a zero sum game, especially when he's talking about business and stuff. Yeah, true. He's often talking about both parties do come away from a, a negotiation situation actually feeling better, especially like we we're going to talk about a lot in this chapter when you're able to label someone's emotions and you can calm them down and they can actually leave the negotiation feeling heard and understood. Um, and the whole idea though of never split the difference is specifically in those high stakes situations is you you have to win right like you, you you're looking to save someone's life or or to get something like that and in business world you've got non-negotiables right there are certain things like i need to make this amount of money i need the contract mm -hmm. needs to look like this and if we can't get there then it's not going to happen because i if we if, there is a good thing about compromise and i don't think his book is going completely against compromising but it's going against you not winning the trade right so um i, I definitely don't think this is an aggressive book of like how to dominate, but I think you can utilize these things to increase I don't know, your power. Never split the difference. Right. Well, I, I, <laughs> that's pretty intense. I, but I think that when I read the tone that this is no, written, no, no, I get the tone, but the tone is part of his emotional intelligence, I think. Right. Exactly. That's what it, that's what it comes down to. So the tone, like if we were to think of like Grant Cardone's tone throughout oh, the whole no, thing no, is like, you are going to crush it. You're going to win. You're going to dominate. All the hostages would be gone. Right. What, what, <laughs> they wouldn't make it out. Well, whereas Chris Voss's situation is definitely more like DJ voice. Yeah. You need to, you're going to win. And, and I don't even just mean like the voice tone he uses in the different situations, but like the tone that it's written in isn't like you're going to come out of this and you're going to be like super hard and hardcore and you're going to, but this is like, you're, if, if you put this stuff into place, you are going to be um, just a better human being that people will actually probably enjoy being around more. So it's not like you, you walk away as like, you're just this jerk that's going to win everything, but you, you walk away as a more well-rounded person who ends up getting more of what you want because you know how to utilize situations and not, not take advantage of people, but to manipulate situations in the right way. Yeah. And I want to add, though, Chris Voss, the way this book is written is well done in the sense that you hear his voice and you don't you don't get this huge overpowering like, you know, there's no is, ego here. There is no ego, but it's it's not that it's there. But he talks about this, that in the end, you're 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 checking ego, but for the ultimate gain. Mm. Right. And so this book is kind of like that. Like, you don't, you know, your, your walls come down, you read this book, you're like, huh, he's probably right. And that's what he wants you to think. But it's written a way where, you know, let's start off right away on chapter three. He talks about, you know, separate the people from the problem, right? Was a common refrain. That's the way people used to do things. Right. So if he started off right off the bat, you know, in this book discussing how people don't matter, you know, 
situations you just got to always win. You got to, you know, whatever way. I don't think we'd be as impressed with the book. Right. It would have sounded like every other book of that, not every other book, but some of the books we've recently read. Right. Right. So, you know, that's where I appreciate Chris Voss and whether he wrote it or somebody helped him, did an excellent job of bringing in emotional intelligence into the writing. Right. No, absolutely. Um, yeah. So g- continuing with that, that quote where you said there, it says, um, separate the people from the problem was the common refrain. Uh, but how can you separate the people from the problem when their emotions are the problem? And we know how that is in real life, right? Like how often it is that it's emotions that are driving um, our decisions. We talked about that in an earlier chapter where, you know, once somebody has something set in, in their mind a certain way that if you come at them in an in a aggressive manner, you t- we talked about the two pit bulls, things are just going to get worse, right? And, and it's emotions that are driving those things. Fear, you talked about in the, in the previous chapter, how big of an impact fear plays. And here it says, emotions are one of the main things that derail communication. Once people get upset at one another, rational thinking goes out the window. Um, and that's that's the real world, right? Like that's whenever you're talking to people, I mean, going back to the idea of almost like a, a marriage counseling or like a, a relationship advice, when people's emotions are high and, and people are heated or they're upset or they're um, frustrated or whatever it is, you're never going to have a productive conversation. In fact, usually things get said or people do things that they end up regretting later, right? And so his the, the whole point of this chapter is not to take a situation and just ignore those emotions, but recognize that those emotions happen to be the primary thing that needs to be dealt with so that you can end up having a meaningful conversation and potentially a great negotiation and increase profits or relationships or whatever it is you're looking for. Yeah, and you see that even on the very small micro scale, I'm thinking of just going to garage sales. You know, you find, you see an item, right? You see two kinds of negotiations happen. We've talked about this before. You have the first person, like the old school, and and they may not be old school. They may just learn a certain way. But for instance, let's say this is my cup. They'll pick up the cup and go, wow, this is trash. Like this hasn't been washed. It's been washed, but this hasn't been washed in weeks. Like there's debris everywhere. The lettering's coming off. Like I'm only going to give you a dollar. How about a dollar? It's like, what if that, this cup means a lot to me. This has pure hustle podcast history. If you're wondering on the podcast, I'm looking at my guy Mountain Dew cup. (laughs) I think I thought Mike was moved his mug because I was going to make it spill. But, uh, you know, this has sentimental value. It's a, it's a cheap cup. It's a cheap cup. Mike ordered these. I don't know. We might be releasing these. Some people have asked. So, you know, there's a lot. So if somebody was trying to negotiate this from me at a garage sale, that automatically would get me heated, which I don't get heated very much, but they push the right buttons. And I'm like, nope, like I'm done talking. No, I'm not. I, you can offer me a hundred dollars and the deal is not happening. Okay. Maybe a hundred, but you're not going to get it. But if somebody comes to you and says, Hey, you know, it says Pure Hustle Podcast. Talk, talk to me a little bit about it. I'm kind of interested. Like this, you know, and I started sharing the story and what it meant. And they begin to relate and they see the, my emotion, right? And they see, you know, walls come down because now I'm like, huh, this person's genuinely interested. And then you can begin the negotiation process. And I think, I don't know if I'm off on this, but that's kind of like where Chris Voss is leading in this chapter. Yeah. And and specifically, I mean, that that's a good example when it comes to like negotiating at a garage sale or something like that. But um, like think of a lot of times people, many of our listeners, you know, you still got a nine to five job or something like that. And oftentimes when we're dealing with things like pay increase or change in benefits or hours are getting changed, right? You're dealing with people's lives. People get very upset. So you might be very upset because something happened to you at work that's c- 
going to impact you financially or time-wise or whatever it is. Your your boss or your manager is making decisions the best they can. They're dealing with stress. So if you can tell that they're upset, you're upset, you go into a conversation trying to get the situation resolved. And if you go in with those kinds of emotions or you recognize that they're dealing with emotions, they might feel like you just aren't, you don't trust them as a leader or whatever it is, you're going to end up having a problem. Here it says, that's why instead of denying or ignoring emotions, good negotiators identify them and influence them. Uh, And then later on it says, for them, emotion is a tool. And so when you can recognize that if you can control your own emotions and learn to recognize and have that emotional intelligence like you were talking about, um, if you can manipulate and control your own emotions, recognize and help move other people's emotions into the proper way, then you're going to have much more meaningful conversations. And just a, a quick aside on emotional intelligence, and, and we may have brought this up on a previous podcast, but emotional intelligence, like IQ when it comes to intellectual intelligence, um, people can usually learn a whole lot more than they already know. Like most people never reach their their potential. However, like your actual IQ for the most part is set. Like that is, that's kind of a thing like people, and I don't mean to say like you'll never get smarter because most people don't reach their potential, but like there are levels genetically that you can reach like intellectual, like not everyone's going to be Einstein, not everyone's going to be Tesla, right? Like studies prove IQ is pretty set, but emotional intelligence. Uh, no, that's not true. It is true. No, because uh, mindset, the latest studies by uh, not not Angela Duckworth, I'm thinking about the other lady. Yeah, no, but, but, but yeah, so I'm not saying that success because IQ doesn't always relate to success. No, agreed. But I, anyways, I I don't want to belabor the point, but studies have shown lately that IQ is not predetermined, that it can definitely be changed. I'm just trying to, you know, you know, the book I'm talking about. Grit? No, the other book. There's, there's the Angela Duckworth book, the grit book. And then there's the other book about mindset and IQ. Right. But, but, well, then maybe agree to disagree here, but. Um, for the most part, like you can try as hard as you want. You're not going to be Einstein, right? That's the point I'm trying to make. Like IQ, like the people who can make like genius level people who are in like the top, you know, 10% of intellectual intelligence. That is something that, it, that that's pretty set. Now, like I said, that doesn't mean people have reached their potential. Like if people were to read more, people were to do things, they could be much smarter than they are. But emotional intelligence is, is more malleable. People can learn emotional intelligence. No, I, I agree with that. Now, the only thing I was going to mention, if you haven't checked out this book, this book by Carol Dweck. Uh, mindset? It, mindset. Yeah. Right? Yeah. She says clearly in Mindset, though, the IQ is set. But it's, no, but it's it's in the beginning, but then it's like a muscle, right? And you can expand that muscle, right? It's like anything. It's it's You're set in a certain way, but that doesn't mean you have to be end up that way. Right. But but that doesn't mean IQ changes. Like like IQ is pretty predetermined. And we'll, we'll agree to disagree. All right. Well, I'll prove you wrong after this. <laughs> All right. But uh, yeah, no, but emotional intelligence is definitely something you can expand and grow. And I, I agree. I mean, I, I look at myself years ago. So many times I would have moments. I'll never forget somebody that we I had to let go as part of my team years ago. This was in, in education. And it was one of those moments where I could have walked out them winning and me winning instead it was just very much like hey here's the dollars and cents it's not feasible for us you're not producing and that's it right and what ended up happening and it wasn't just me it was me with with, uh the guy you know that was my boss and he was very much even more so than emotions don't matter right people what they're going through in their lives what's happening doesn't matter ultimately what matters is you know the dollars and cents 
Well, we ended up losing because then it became a huge, you know, PR fiasco, right? We we ended up having to let go somebody that was very tied into the community. We didn't think it through. We didn't communicate well and it became a mess. So yeah, emotional intelligence is something that now I look at that and I go, probably wouldn't handle it that way, right? Mm -hmm. So we all can change. We all can definitely grow in those aspects. So did you have something more to add on that page? I got plenty to add, but I'm just going to let you. There's a lot. No, well. I have the I have the Michael Scott Rolodex rule here. Mm. So, do you ever catch that episode of The Office? I'm sure I have, but I don't. So, I there's one where where Michael, right? He has this paper company, right? That he starts on his own, right? He leaves those of you that love The Office, you'll you'll remember this episode. And then Dwight finds Michael's Rolodex, and Michael has the Rolodex labeled orange for this and green for this, whatever. And it was genius. So a lot of people discount Michael Scott, but if you watch the show, there's a lot of genius in what Michael Scott does. I know it sounds crazy, but what Michael Scott was doing was like he knew the details of every single client that he was working with. He knew about their son. He knew about their, you know, their spouse, where they're going to school. And, and that plays a huge part of negotiating. And Chris Voss re- re- uh, excuse me, reiterates that. He says, the more you know about someone, the more power you have, right? And that's 100%. Like if you're looking to negotiate, whether it's in a wholesale deal, whether it's a garage sale, whether it's, you know, you're at your job, right? And you're trying to get, Mike had talked about earlier about getting a raise. One of the best things you can do is build that commonality with that individual. Don't just go in and be about straight business. I can tell you in my 15 years of being in the professional world, I never once ended up getting paid less. Every year I was able to negotiate some kind of raise every single time. And one of the reasons was, and I'm not saying it's because I, I was any you know great individual, I knew how to work things, but I understood number one, what the needs were that people needed. And two, the angle to speak to that person based on who they were. So I knew if a certain person was about all about encouragement, I knew to approach that person about how I can make myself more invaluable and encourage things that would encourage everyone else and build a greater team aspect. And therefore I was able to negotiate, you know, maybe adding something extra to my plate, but negotiate a higher salary. The other one is I dealt with a boss who was all about dollars and cents. So if I could prove to him where I could save money and where I can make money on one one way, then I could say, Hey, all it's going to cost you is this much. And if you think of the long term, you're going to make a lot more money by paying me this amount. I understood that he was very much dollars and cents and year after year, I'd be able to prove my worth and get that, you know, raised salary. So I say this out of experience and out of knowledge that definitely you got to understand. We've talked about this before, right? When you communicate with people, you got to be at the level or the understanding of where that person needs to be met. Because if you try to speak to everybody the same way, you will lose, I think, a lot of the time. Yeah. And one of the things that he talks about, because the big story, because there's always one, there's always one big, like, Mm -hmm. um, like real life hostage negotiation or some big event that happens that he uses as kind of the background for the story and the things he's talking about. And then a handful of like business examples and then a handful of like personal relationship examples of how it all kind of comes together. And in this instance, there are uh, a couple of uh, people who were wanted for, I believe it was murder. Um, it was a couple of weeks ago that I read this, but anyways, they were involved in a shooting. They're locked up in a Harlem in, apartment. in a Harlem apartment and they're trying to get them out. They've got the building surrounded and it took six hours for them to be able to actually get these people out of the building. And in fact, they were so quiet in there that they were like, we're not like, are they in there? Like what's going on? And it took forever of them just 
using this emotional intelligence and and recognizing their emotions and doing these things to 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 get the, a hold of them and get them out. Um, but one of the things that and it, it kind of goes back to our last chapter with the the bank robber is it says this. It says getting to this level of emotional intelligence demands opening up your senses, talking less, and listening more. You can learn almost everything you need and a lot more than other people would like you to know simply by watching and listening, keeping your eyes peeled and your ears open and your mouth shut. And I think that's one thing um, like I can identify about myself that I'm pretty good at, especially in new situations. My weakness is after I get comfortable with people, I, I kind of stop doing this. But when I'm in a new situation, I think a lot of people, this is, they're more like this in, in a new work environment or around new people is I'm a watcher, right? Like I will kind of be on the outskirts. I'll kind of be a chameleon. I'll kind of just figure out what's going on. Who's who, who talks to who, who's saying what. And it, if you're careful and you're paying attention, you can quickly find out everybody's dynamics in a work situation. Like who likes who, who doesn't like who, which bosses people like, which just by watching and listening. And, and just like it says here, the reality is people will often give you more than they want you to know if you're willing to listen and pay attention. Just by listening, just by watching, just by paying attention, people let things slip. But most people miss that stuff because they're so busy talking and interjecting and all of those mm -hmm. things. So uh, just kind of a, a reminder to to do that in, in situations. Take the time, recognize which boss can I approach with a little bit more aggression? Which do I need to come with more, you know, be, be a little you know, more fluff their feathers, as it were, whatever it is, you can quickly tell what motivates people and then what kind of emotions they're going through. And by watching and paying attention, you might notice like, hey, you know, Cindy or hey, you know, John, like you're normally like I could tell they're normally really happy. And then now they don't seem quite as happy. They don't seem upset, but I can tell like I've, I've watched them enough to know something's going on. And those are, are clues and triggers that you can use to engage them in conversations differently, recognizing, hey, maybe other people don't recognize something's wrong, but I can. So I'm going to approach them a little different than I would in another situation. Right. And you only know that if you're paying attention, you're watching people, you're listening to people, you're paying attention to uh, their emotions and how they react in certain situations. It's kind of like, you know, being a really good poker player, right? Like you've got to be able to know the tells of people. And that only happens if you're paying really, really close attention. True. And again, for me, it doesn't come easy. Like I'm able to understand people when I'm on a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them. But when I sit in a room and watch, I mean, I can figure things out, but I have a hard time just sitting in a room watching. I usually need to interject. And you guys get that. You watch the podcast, you listen to the podcast. But yes, it, it's one of the key skills that, again, you it's going to take work. All these things are going to take work. It's not natural. Eventually, some of this will come natural, right? And for Chris Voss, obviously, it's natural because, you know, he's been doing this for a while. But, you know, when he talks about tactical empathy, right, gets to the next page, which to me is probably the most powerful tool, I think, in, in any way. If you're able to empathize with people, you it'll go a lot further, a lot further, right? And, and give you an example, you know, even if you're in any kind of situation with another individual, and they're struggling with something, right? I've always noticed this and I'm, I'm quick to always want to fix things, right? And people joke about this, like in marriage relationships, like husbands, are, they don't want, you know, wives don't want husbands to always fix things, right? But I think it goes vice versa. There's times I want back in the day people just to listen to me, mm -hmm. right? But it's, it's a tough thing. And he talks about tactical empathy is understanding the feelings and mindset of another in the moment and also hearing what is behind those feelings to you increase your influence on moments that follow. So. That's another layer of listening. It's not just hearing the problem. It's trying to figure out what 
the reasoning is behind that problem, right? Because, it, you know, right now, let's say there's something wrong, I don't know, on our table right here. And, you know, Mike gets really upset and Mike takes his microphone and just starts smashing it. I'm like, Mike, what's wrong with the microphone? Well, it's not that Mike's upset at the microphone. And it's not that Mike has a migraine right now. Something else could have taken place that I totally missed, right? And, and you know, I hung out with Mike earlier today and maybe I wasn't listening close enough. And, you know, you do come off like a moron sometimes when people are really heated and you think it's just about that incident and you miss the other point. So tactical empathy is huge. Yeah, that's good. And and just to clarify, um, you know, empathy is feeling with somebody, like being able to kind of get on their level and and feel the same pain that they're feeling, whereas sympathy is feeling sorry for somebody. And oh, nobody okay. likes sympathy, yeah. right? And so, um, I mean, there are people who kind of, they 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 like sympathy, but for the most part, that's not going to get you very far. Most people are going to feel like, you know, somebody is being condescending or if it's kind of like, oh, you know, poor that person, like nobody really wants to be in that situation. But if somebody can feel with you and you feel like you're being heard and understood, that's very different. And so empathy is a very powerful tool um, when you can. And, and he, he talks later on in this section, we'll talk about it when we get there, but kind of like labeling somebody's emotions and kind of identifying what the emotions they're going through are and doing it in a way that. Um, you know, you're not necessarily being a counselor, but you're saying something, you're articulating in words, feelings that they're having, which then immediately releases a lot of the anxiety and kind of tension they have in those emotions, which is instantly diffuses situations, right? As soon as you can label something and it's like, okay, yes, now you guys can kind of move on past that. Um, one of the things he talks about with negotiating is playing dumb is a valid negotiating technique. I don't understand is a legitimate response, but ignoring the other party's position only builds up frustration and makes them less likely to do what you want. Um, and, and you can think about that, like even with, I mean, we just had Thanksgiving not too long ago and a lot of people joke about like, you know, talking about politics or religion or whatever it is during, you know, family get togethers. And, and oftentimes people have so much emotion. You've got to believe, I, I, I try and explain it this way or think about it this way is people on both sides of, of almost every issue want something good. They have good motivations behind the things, the decisions, the ideas they have. It's it's very few people who are just 100% just malicious in their intent. Like most people want good outcome. They're seeing and feeling the same situations differently. And so when you can listen to somebody and recognize what they're going through, let them understand that you, you, you okay, what if, why is it they feel the way they do? I have the opposite opinion about what their their opinion is, but they feel strongly about this. If I was in their shoes, what would make me feel like that? And you could start to empathize with them. I could see why they might feel like this about this situation. And then when you could put yourself in those shoes, now empathizing does not mean that you agree with them, right? You don't have to agree with the person's feelings, but if you can say like, I could see how somebody would get upset if you know somebody said this or did this or this situation, whatever it is, I, if I was in their situation, in my mind, I wouldn't be upset about it or I, I think differently about this. However, they don't. And so what are the things that are motivating them? If I was feeling upset about this, like I could see why I would be passionate and I would come to this conclusion. And so empathizing is kind of getting to that place where you're not ignoring their their emotions. Because if you completely ignore and 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 get rid of the validity of what they're feeling, then you're not going to get anywhere in a situation. Well, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it was one of those things. I remember when I was an administrator all the time, you know, you, you have that kid that wouldn't do their homework and it's always like, they're just lazy. They're just lazy. They're just lazy. Right. 
and teachers get around the water cooler or they get in, you know, and I did it myself when I was a teacher and like that kid's just, just that kid doesn't care. He doesn't care about his school. He doesn't care about his grades. He's not going to, you know, da, da, da. And I remember that one of the first moments that that all changed was when I had, I had the student and he was just, he was bawling his eyes out. And I remember him telling me, you know, I, I just, I, I can't do it. And I'm like, what do you mean you can't do it? You have six hours of your entire evening to get work done and you're not getting stuff done. And I, then I, you know, I asked him, I said, okay, break me down your schedule hour by hour. What happens? And ultimately the way I was able to win him over and get him to see that he could do it was by understanding that, Hey, he related to me that his parents were never home. Right. So he had to fend for himself. Right. So, and he also had to take care of his siblings and he also had sports and his parents expected him to be next level in his sports. And they cared more about him doing his homework towards the very end because he had to get out on the practice field. And so once I understood all that and I was able to put myself in his shoes and go, that'd be rough coming home. No one's home. Then I got my siblings to take care of. I don't even know how to cook. I don't even know how to make a meal. Then I got to go practice. Then I got to get back. It's eight o'clock at night. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I'm going to feel like I can't do anything. I'm tired. I'm done. And I remember just repeating that back to that, to that student and remember him, you know, saying, you get it. Like you understand. I said, yeah, in a way, in a way I do. And it seems to me, and we'll talk about using those key words that you're super frustrated and you feel like there's no options for you. And you know, begin to label and we'll talk about labeling. And then I remember as a result of that, being able to get him to understand, Hey, you know what? There are solutions and working with solutions and was able to turn, you know, that students, you know, grades around, but it wasn't always that the case. But what I'm saying is empathizing is hard work because you seriously have to check your ego and go, I'm really going to try to understand what this person is going through. Right. Instead of labeling an individual, Hey, they're lazy. They don't care or whatever it is. Or even to the point, like somebody that's been atrocious towards you, right? Well, in any kind of negotiation, right? Cause there's those people in business that they're, they're just sharks. Mm. Like they don't care about you at all. But if you're able somehow to gain that knowledge about what made them that way, you'll definitely go a lot further. And so I want to rewind a little bit. You had talked about playing dumb, right? And I find, you know, in our podcast, when Mike and I get heated and things don't go anywhere, it's when we cut each other off and we don't ask each other questions like just earlier before. And we won't get into the mindset thing, but, you know, Mike could have said, hey, where'd you find that? Or I could have said, really interested. Where did you, you know what I mean? We could have had this conversation and we could have ended better. Right. Or other times. I remember one time you were just like, you're dead wrong. And another time I've done that, yeah. like, Mike, you're done. And the conversation goes nowhere, emotions get heated, and we don't land anywhere, right? So what I'm saying is questions are so, and he's talked about this in Being the Mirror earlier on before in the earlier chapters, but it's so big in any kind of negotiation or trying to get people, you know, to move on to another area or, you know, level up. But first, you got to get to that place. Yeah. And and just to be clear, um, you know, I am right in that situation. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, um, that is the way it is. All right. He just uh, lost. 
Uh, well, but but to our listeners, though, I, I'm not trying to convince you. I can show. I know you're a proof person, so when I show you the proof, you'll be fine. Uh, but I want to make sure our listeners are getting accurate. I think I'm gonna reread that book. Like yeah. I contemplated that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, growth mindset is about emotional intelligence, not intellectual intelligence. Or uh, yeah, intellectual intelligence. I'm so. gonna reread it. It's been uh, a few years. But um, also be willing to admit when you're wrong. And Chris Voss talks about that later. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I. Uh, so I'll come. I'm back. not wrong. So hey, I don't you, have to. Admit if you it. watch the podcast, you know. I have no qualms about saying I'm wrong because I'm wrong a lot and I don't care. I just don't care. That's part of life. You know how you can be happy by just not caring if you're wrong and then just making it right. That's how you, how, how you can be happy. That's good advice. That's the quote of the week right there. Put that, I can put that on a pillow. <laughs> Stitch it. <laughs> on a pillow. Um, all right. So empathy is a, a classic soft communication skill, it says, um, and it's based on a physical basis. So it talks specifically when we are actually watching somebody's facial expressions, our neural pathways begin to align with their feelings. And we all know what this is like. So if you're really not paying close attention to somebody and somebody's talking to you and you're looking at something else, you're doing something else, you're only half paying attention, you're not feeling the emotions with them. However, when you look at somebody in the face and you're actually having a conversation and you're not so concerned about your emotions, but you're listening, like we talked about last time, and you see somebody's kind of facial expressions, you could see the pain that they're going through, and just watch it yourself when you do it. Like when somebody tells you like, hey, like my mom just got diagnosed with cancer and watch your own facial expressions. Do you just keep it the same and like, oh, wow, that's bad. No, like usually you like you mimic the, the expression that they have on like you, like you're heartbroken. Like you go into the same like physically you can almost begin to mimic like we talked about last time with being the mirror. But neurologically, when we're experiencing empathy we start to understand them better. And again, we got to remember that we're not necessarily saying, because he's talking about here, people who are going to go to prison, they've committed felonies, they are armed and dangerous. These aren't people that it's like, hey man, you, I, I understand why you did what you did. You're a good person. Like he's not doing that. He's not saying like, I agree with you, but he's understanding, hey, if I was trapped in a building and I know like this is my last chance, I'm going to jail, how would I feel, right? And so when you can be at that place where you can, experience the pain or the joy or whatever it is that somebody else is going through, it then gives you more knowledge about them. And like we've talked about, that knowledge then becomes power. So um, that that becomes a really good um, tool that you can use. All right. What else you got? We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. I'm, o- I'm over to labeling. Now. Labeling. Let's do it. Just because I, I think labeling is it's something that it takes time like it, it, it's such a hard skill because you know you have to i would say you have to practice it a lot before it finally becomes natural so you know in this he talks about you know the idea of getting individuals to label what's going on right label their feelings label their fears get it out there get it in the open and it's not you telling them, it's them saying it. Did I get that right? Is that what's happening in this chapter in this part of the chapter? Getting them to say it? No. In, in it, no? Mm-mm. In the sense that like you you don't want to directly like you want to through questions get them to a place and then you can label it. Um kind of a part of the labeling, most of the labeling is 
is is you are labeling it for them because oftentimes Correct. they're not able to. But not right off the bat. Well, like it's a process. Um, I mean, it, it it probably each situation is going to be different. But for instance, in the situation he's using, and in a lot of the examples he gives, he immediately is the first one to label, right? Like he, he specifically talks about it's often one of your most powerful tools. But it's it's super strategic. Like he says, you know, he'll use words like it seems like it sounds like right. Which he is labeling, but he's not. No, he's labeling. No, but <laughs> let me rephrase. He's labeling. Okay, let's use your wording. He's labeling it, but he's getting the person to clarify that label. Sometimes, sometimes it moves to that point where they're supposed to respond to it, uh, but not always, right? Like the examples that he's giving here is, uh, for instance, the people in the building, they don't ever respond, but he, he uses words like um, you... You must be, you must not want to go back to jail. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a part in the book. Like, sure. It kind of explains what I'm talking about. So he talks about when you phrase, when you phrase a label as a neutral statement of understanding, it encourages your counterpart to be more, res to be responsive. They'll usually give a longer answer than just yes or no. And if they disagree with the label, that's okay. You can always step back and say, I didn't say that's what it was. I said, it seems like. Right. Right. So. It, it's not, yeah, he is labeling, but he's looking to clarify, to get a bigger picture, right? To get more understanding and to build empathy with that person. So that person feels as if, you know, Chris Voss is in it with them. Not, not going to give them what they want, but at least get them the feeling that they're, they're with them. Yeah. And, and specifically to understand um, what it is that they are feeling. So um, for instance, he gives an example towards the end of the book uh, or this chapter of like a grandpa or an uncle who's over at Thanksgiving who almost, you know, nobody ever makes time to see him. Um, and he's kind of known as like the grouchy one. And so he explains that right away starts the conversation like, Hey, um, it seems like, um, you are kind of frustrated and like, we don't come around very much. And I can, I, I can imagine how that makes you feel. Uh, but we do want to list like, so he begins to label what the other person is feeling. And if they, if that person then goes, oh, no, no, I don't feel like that at all, then that's fine. But by you labeling it, you take the tension away from the situation. And then they now understand like, hey, they get where, what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the labeling, you can get the clarification. They can come back and say, like, no, that's not it at all. Uh, but by saying those things, if you if you label what you think the situation is, and he gives an example of uh, a study was done where people were shown faces of people who are going through like pain or, or or different like agonizing faces. And immediately the brain scan shown that when you see that face, you start to experience pain or panic or fear. Like as you're looking at it, like your brain is reacting, your amygdala is like firing. But then if they immediately had the person say like, OK, can you please label what you're seeing? the moment they label what they're seeing, that kind of, that emotional stuff kind of stops. And so mm -hmm. they get more control over themselves, the person looking at it. So by you labeling it, it does it for both of you. So you're, you're, you're really lowering emotions. That's kind of the point is it lowers the emotions for you because now you're not, if you're, if you empathize well, you're feeling pain with them, you're frustrated with them. And that might not be what you want. Like if they're frustrated at you and you're empathizing with that frustration and you're also frustrated, frustration levels can actually go up. But then the idea of labeling is that your frustration goes down because you're labeling what you're feeling and empathizing. And then they have a label for it and it causes that emotional escalation to, to go down and deescalate. I agree. And I would say if you use those three phrases, it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like, on anything at any time, 
whenever you're trying to negotiate something, it is the best way to me, in my experience, to eventually start that conversation and get what you want. Yeah. And and it says here specifically, uh, notice we said it sounds like and not I'm hearing that. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's important because it says that's because the word I gets people's guard up. When I say I, it says you're more interested in yourself than the other person. And it makes and it takes um, and it makes you take personal responsibility for the words that follow and the offense that they might cause. So instead of saying, I think that you're pretty mad at me or I think this, you could say, it seems like there's there's been a miscommunication here. It seems like you feel like I haven't been listening or it seems like or I um, it sounds like when you say words like that, and again, remember, like these can be said in a biting way too. So you, these aren't just like the magic words you can say in the beginning. You'd be like, seems like you don't care what's going on in this house, right? Like that's not going to work. attitude there with right? me. That was good. But if you, you know, start a situation, if you and your spouse are having a, a you know difficult situation and, and they're not doing their part of the chores or whatever it is, you can say like, it seems like there's something going on that's causing you to be upset or not want to do um, the, the chores. Like, could you explain it? Or it's, Right. When you do that, it's different than just immediately saying, like, seems like you don't care. Right. So avoid the personal attacks, whether it sounds like it's coming from you. Like, I think that you're not listening or I don't think you're listening, but it it seems like you might not have heard what I said is probably a little bit better. Yeah, I agree. I, I think you need to be careful of making sure that it's emotion that you're addressing too. you know, instead of labeling. And he talked about that. You're not necessarily labeling the action itself, but you're also labeling the emotion, right? It seems like it seems you're angry or it seems, you know, you're disappointed or it seems you're sad that of, you know, it seems you want this or it seems you want that. Right. And, and when you say it, like, it seems like you're disappointed in my decision um, that I made today. Right. And then again, when you do something like that, what you're doing is you're allowing them to then clarify, right? Like we talked mm-hmm. about and to reveal more, mm-hmm. right? Where then they could say like, yeah, I don't know why you made that decision. And then you could say, um, you know, go go from there. But as soon as you say it like that, instead of like, you don't understand why I do what I do, right? Like that's the that, that's not going to work as as much as labeling. And again, you could be wrong, right? Like it seems like you didn't like the decision I made tonight. And then if they say like, no, it's not that. It's actually this. Boom. Now you have something to work with, right? So that's always a good thing. Um, and then here it says labeling negative diffuses them. And there's he goes through study after study of like actual like scientists hooking up magical things to people's heads and looking at brainwaves and stuff. Science and magic, do they work together? So, um, you know, I'm talking about like EKGs and all that stuff. EKGs, I I think, is your heart, so never mind. But, um, (laughs) you know, when they're looking at brainwaves and things like that, that they've shown that when you label negative emotions, it diffuses them. And when you label positive emotions, it reinforces them. So this works both ways. I I agree. This goes back to, (laughs) it's so funny, it goes back to 10X rule, right? Where... Cardone was talking about what is it kind of like thinking worst case scenario, right? We always want to go worst case scenario, right? And I will tell you the times in my life, I am very big. So one of the, I'm just getting real here. I catastrophize a lot, like in the sense that I will think worst case scenario, right? So, you know, it's related to recently. And I remember last year at this point in time, I was like, oh, I'm done. Like I'm thousands of dollars in debt. Things haven't picked up, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, okay, no. like, And when people started asking me, like, hey, Orlando, I'm touching the mic, sorry. Hey, Orlando, like, do you really think nothing's going to sell over the next six days? Are you sure about that? And when I started going, you know what? You're right. I think things are going to be okay. And then you put that fear out there, right? And you, you 
destroy that fear because a lot of things that we fear, right, our our minds and and this is it's interesting. This was discussed in the ten x rule. I think <laughs> our minds are so quick to just go to the negative. Mm. I mean, we're prone to the negative, no matter what part of our lives. That's where we want to go, and I think part of it is we want to be ready. We want to protect ourselves. We want to make sure that we're okay, right? But I love how he puts it out here, right? He says on page 59, the fastest and most efficient means of establishing a quick working relationship is acknowledge the negative and diffuse it, right? Now, it's not directly related to what I was saying, but I think in any scenario, I think getting the negative out of the way first is a win. Yeah, and specifically here, he's talking about when it's you, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times you have to apologize. And he starts this that section by saying, try this the next time you have to apologize for a boneheaded mistake, right? Is going right into the negative. Label it, right? Label how they might feel for the decision you make. And he uses here- His uh, example is kind of out there. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase. No, I actually think it's great. I've, I think I've, it's a great example, but I'm like, would I have been willing to joke around on the phone with somebody like this? I don't know. I think it's good. I've used similar things before in the past and it's been very effective. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use G-rated or um, maybe PG-rated uh, language here instead of the... Also rated. Yeah, instead of the R-rated language he used. But he says, uh, I found the phrase, look, I'm a jerk, to be an amazing, effective way to make problems go away. And I think that's true. Like, when you can say, like, hey, I know I, I, I seem like Well, a that's jerk. not the part I was talking about. It was the part when he calls the head of the state agency and says, uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Mm. Oh, I see. That, that's what I was talking about. Like, you know... You have to have a certain comfort level to joke with someone that is above you. And I think even that, like, what is the other person going to do, right? Like, they might be like, because the, the point- It's really awkward. Well, but yeah, but the point he was making is, so he goes to another country without getting proper approval to go into that country and to kind of do, like, investigation stuff. And, and because of that, you have two agencies now almost butting heads and almost this power struggle, right? Mm-hmm. So even though that's awkward, by him calling, though, and saying, like, hey, I didn't get approval- the uh, forgive me, Father, I have sinned. Basically, what he's doing is, look, I'm not in a power struggle with you. I'm coming to you and I'm asking forgiveness. I shouldn't have come in the way I did without getting approval. Look, I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. And immediately it diffuses it because even if the other person is like, this is a little awkward, they're not fighting for that power, right? They're not like, look, I'm the macho one. No, I'm the macho one. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm at, it's a joke. He's making a joke. Mm-hmm. Forgive me, Father, I have sinned. And so, yeah, like that specific joke is a little, um, you know, might not work in every situation. But can you imagine the person that you are in a power struggle with hearing that and immediately not being diffused? Right. Like yeah. they're going to be like, yeah, they'd probably laugh and be it. like, oh, that's a little awkward. But like, hey, OK, so I don't have to worry about you trying to take my job. Right. Um, and, and he says top guys like to feel on top. They don't want to be disrespected. Right. And, and I think that's true. That's mm-hmm. a good thing to remember. All right. But yeah, that's a good one though. Like, have you ever used the like, look, I'm a jerk or I know I'm a jerk, right? I know All the time. Right? that is so powerful when you can do that, when you can start a conversation that way um, and, and admit, like, especially when you make a big mistake. And he gives an example in this, in this story of, of a company who got a contract with another company, who got a contract and, and then ended up like not working out. And then one contract was kind of uh, or one of the the participants was not providing what they were said they were going to provide, and the other one kept having to raise the prices or not giving them as much of the cut. And so the way they they resolved it was the company that was the bigger company that ha- kept having to reduce the amount they were giving the the company they had the contract with. Um, basically, was to come in and say, "Look, I know we must seem like the big like big mega company that's just coming in to squeeze the last dollar out of you, right? Like I know it seems like that, and not that I know, but it's." 
I know this is what we are, right? Like this is what it seems like. You must feel like we're that, right? And then the, yeah, kind of, but not really. Like we know you're not trying to do that. And so by coming in and saying like, look, here's how I've messed up. And I found that that's really powerful. Um, I'll, I'll give a, an example. So my new teaching job that I have, um, it was right after eBay open. I went to the interview and it was supposed to just be like, I literally got off the, the, the plane from eBay open, landed, was wearing the outfit I was supposed to wear, but I think I like forgot a belt or something that I had to like rush to the house and put it on really quick, get to this interview, show up at this interview, like breathless, do the interview. And as I'm sitting in there, actually like filling out like the last thing before I sat in this panel, the the office lady says, oh, I forgot to tell you they wanted to do like a um, a demo lesson with you, but I forgot to tell you ahead of time. So they're not going to do it. Right. Like because you use for a demo lesson, you got to prep for and be prepared for. I didn't have anything. And so I was like, OK, they're not going to make me do a demo lesson. She said they might just ask you like what you would do in a lesson. I'm like, OK, that works. Then after the interview was done, they go, okay, we actually have some students here for summer school. Um, we'd like you to do a demo lesson. Uh, we know you didn't have time to prepare, but here, you're, you got like 10 minutes, right? Panic, right? So I do the best I can, but I know there's little things that I mess up. So immediately I went home. I'm hoping, I, I, I feel like I did a pretty good job with this lesson, but I'm, I'm writing down everything that if I was watching it, like I would have nitpicked. And I would say like, hey, he, he didn't manage the classroom well in this situation. He responded to this um, student this way. He didn't have this prepared. He didn't like, what were the things that I could have done better? Right. I reflected. And then when I got called for like to come back for like my second interview, um, before they could even really ask me, um, anything they're like, yeah, we loved your, your, your demo interview. First thing I said, or your demo lesson, the first thing I said is, yeah, you know, um, it, the students were so great. Like, I wish I would have had more time to have like a connection with them. Cause I feel like I wasn't able to connect with uh, the couple students up in front because I didn't really know their um, that the one didn't like the time. And I immediately started to recognize the things that I did wrong, right? That takes the sting away from it, right? Because then it's not something they can accuse me of. It's not like an awkward thing. And I'm, I'm acknowledging what I messed up with or could have done better and how I would have fixed it. Immediately, they're like, yeah, that's so good. And like, we were going to ask you if you'd have done anything different, but like, that's perfect. That's everything you want to hear. Uh, here, sign the paper right here, right? Like, that's kind of how that worked. And so in situations, like always think, go in prepared to admit your mistakes immediately, because if you do it, if you're the one that admits the mistakes, you take the sting out of it. If they have to accuse you of something and you get defensive of it, totally different, different ballgame. Agreed. Agreed. I have more to share, but I want to take a quick break to share about our social media real quick. Let's do it. So if you haven't had a chance, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. We are Pure Hustle Podcast. We're also on Twitter, Pure Hustle Cast. If you ever want to give us a call and chime in, let us know your thoughts. 619-738-1170. That's 619-738-1170. If you ever want to shoot us an email, we are Podcast at gmail.com. That's Podcast at gmail.com. If you're listening to the podcast and you want to see our lovely mugs, know what we're talking about. You can always go over to YouTube, hit that subscribe button, hit that notification uh, to be notified when anything new drops, like the live or, you know, which we may go live again. Yeah, that I, might be a more frequent thing. I really enjoyed the live. That was Thank you, all of you that showed up for that. That was super awesome. And, uh, you know, if you ever want to say thank you in a monetary way, there's a link below. Thank you. We always get these random donations like, whoa, like, where did that come from? So we are grateful. And for our reviews... I think by the time this episode drops, we may be at 200 or we're at 199. We're like right there. So if you haven't had a chance and we've been able to bring you value before you even donate anything, unless you're donating a few thousand, 
write up a review. We just want to say, you know, just let us know your thoughts because it really, really helps us. Mike's talked about that multiple times. So we are grateful and great for all of you, especially, you know, with this level up review, right? There's some things we'll get wrong. There's a lot that I'll get wrong, but there's a lot of value in these books. And hopefully they help you not only in your reselling life, but in other aspects of your life. And by the way, we're not motivational speakers in any way. We're learning with all of you. All right. So what you said is 100% the best way to handle things. Okay. So let's talk about how Orlando doesn't handle things well. So this last go around. Now, I really do think it wasn't, you know, whatever you want to say, it wasn't destiny or providence or in the stars or whatever for me to move on in education at that moment in time, right? My, my reselling business had been at a place where I was making more than I was making as administrator, but I still kind of, you know, I had some offers and, and there was a really elite school, really elite school. I mean, this school paid over 30 grand a year tuition. Each student was over 30. That's pretty expensive. I mean, you know, the really top tier, like 50 K, but this is like a college education. Yeah. Right. It's like a fancy college education. So I remember going there. Now, here's something you always got to remember. If you're known in any way, somebody knows the negatives about you, right? And the best way to counter those negatives is like Mike said, is to put them out there before anything happens. I, unfortunately, I had two places. I had one place that I was really well known and a lot of people love me, but I didn't know who didn't love me. And I, you know, I didn't get the job. I don't think I don't, in my reasoning for not getting the job, I think it was because there was somebody that was more qualified, had more letters next to their name and da, 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 da. But the one thing I do remember out of those two interviews is all I was doing was showcasing my strengths. Mm. That's all I did. I talked about how good I was at this, how good I was at that, how good I was at this. And I never had diffused whatever questions might've been in their mind. Right. And so I'm reading this book and going, I know what to do next time. Mm. Right now I've gotten, you know, if you guys, if you guys don't know anything about me, I've only worked professionally in one place. Right. Whoa. So I've never really had to interview anywhere. Right. My, my, my first job was, that's all I did until I became a reseller. So, you know, going into the interview field and reading this going, you know what, these people, these individuals probably, and these were teams. One room, I was I was being interviewed by, I think, 35 people, right? Because this was an administration job. So, you know, faculty members were there, board members were there, everybody was there, right? And all I did is, Orlando was so good at this, Orlando was so good at that. And I think I could have come off stronger had I, in the beginning, go, hey, I know there are certain things you've heard about me. Because I remember there was, a, um, I don't know, I don't want to get into much details, but there was a scenario that where I worked, some people believe wasn't handled well. And it ended up getting out there and people heard about it. Instead of me talking about how I, and I did eventually a little bit kind of like backtrack and go, yeah, you know, if I could do it over, I would do this instead. Instead, I should have started with, you know what? I think we blew it. See, even now I struggle saying it, right? Because I was, I was, I was part of that decision. I wasn't the sole decision maker. Um, what did, what term did, what did George, George W. Bush say? I'm the, I'm the decider. Was that what he said? I so I wasn't, I think that's what he said. So I wasn't the decider on this, not a real word. Um, but I was part of it. Right. And so had I right off the bat said, you know what? I, it seems that, you know, from the outside, 
I feel that this and this and this, and you know what? You're probably right. I could, I think my authenticity would have come through a lot better. Yeah. At the other place, you know, I was at this elite school and I'm thinking, I just got to show how good I am going to be. I'm going to be to everybody. But had I had said, you know what? This is a, a place that I can't relate to because, you know, on a social economic scale, it's, it's completely different than what I know. So I'm sure there's going to be something that I'm going to have to learn, blah, 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 which I knew ahead of time, but I didn't want to show weakness. Mm. And I really do think I thought this, I really, Mike, I, I think I've shared this place. I really thought I had this, mm. you know, I had the right letters next to my name. I had the experience. I had, I had everything going for me. I even had somebody on the inside who was putting my name out there and I still didn't get it. Right. And so, Anyways, you know, if you're trying to get a job and you're known, I definitely agree with when he talks about doing an accusation audit. Basically, when he says the first step of doing so is listing every terrible thing like you did, your counterpart could say about you in what I call an accusation audit. So do I 100% agree with this. Do that first. Get it out the way. Because, again, people will feel more comfortable and they're more willing to listen. Right. Anyways, sorry. I, I know the diatribe, but I feel so strongly about that because yeah. I look at this and go, where were you, Chris Voss? But it's okay because this is what I was meant to do right now. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's very true. I mean, and here's the thing, like most if people know you, if they're close to you, they know your weaknesses just in the same way. Like I always think about this. Like a lot of times we think we're better at hiding ourselves from people than we really are. Yeah. Like our, our mistakes, because we even try and hide them from ourselves. Like whether you are a little lazier, you're like, I'm a procrastinator, right? Like I, I procrast, I mean, I've gotten a lot better. I time manage, like, like that is my way of combating that. Like I, I keep like to-do lists for the day and I schedule out my days because if I don't, I'll procrastinate. And so people who know me really, really well, that are close to me, they know I'm going to procrastinate things. And so if I think that I can kind of show off and act like I'm not that way, it's not going to work. Now, if somebody asks me to do something and, or I want to, to take on a new responsibility, you know, with a family member and I want to do this thing or lead this like party we're doing. And instead of just like asking or saying something and then kind of leaving it that, if I were to say like, look, I know I'm, I, I know I'm kind of the known procrastinator. However, this is really important to me and I'll, I'm, I'll be on it. Right. Immediately I diffuse the situation. So the thing that they're going to go talk about me behind my back, I'm just going to say it in front of them. Right. Like if, if you know those things that people are going to say behind your back, say it in front of them, that way you can have the conversation. And then they're not going to be like, yeah, but you know, he's actually a procrastinator. They're going to say like, Hey, I mean, you know, we, we, we know he procrastinates, but he seems to really care about this one. And he reckon, you know what I mean? It's a totally different situation. And so have that audit show. And maybe that's something you have to do with yourself. Maybe you have to have an acquisition audit on yourself in every situation and kind of reflect. And I don't think that's something people do often enough because a lot of times, I mean, teaching is a field where there's lots and lots of observations and you're kind of forced to like, okay, like go through the lesson. How did it go? What worked well? What didn't work well? And if you can take, I've tried to take that into more areas of my life, doing a reflection and kind of doing that audit on yourself is so beneficial. And, and if you haven't done that on yourself in situations, what went well, what didn't go well, what was your fault? And then owning those things, it can make a total difference. Agreed. And, you know, and he reinforces that with the example about, you know, um, the negotiation I was trying to deal with ABC and the payout. And, and uh, do you want to, do we want to, should we recap that story real quick? With the business? Yeah. I mean, if you okay. want to, it's kind yeah. of a little complicated because of the, the business. Okay. Well, thing. basically, all right. So let's just cut to the end. All right. So basically, Chris Voss, so there was this deal that was supposed to happen, but there was a lot of negatives and the other company didn't feel comfortable about it, right? 
So Chris Voss at the end, he writes, she's right. As you just saw, the beauty of going right after negativity is that it brings us to a safe zone of empathy. Mm. Right. And I, I, I really, I think in this era, I think we're in an era of authenticity, right? I think on YouTube and I think on Instagram, I think those are very key tells. Now, there is a lot out there still of like, you got to look at your best, right? Everything's all good. We joke about it, but I really think that is shifting. Mm. I do. Cause you know, we've, we've talked about this and we're not creators per se, but we are creators in the sense that, and Mike and I struggle all the time, right? Mike, you want to make things perfectly right, right? You want the sound and the quality and everything to be great. I'm more of like, let's just roll with it. Let's just bring the value. Let's do what we can. But you see a lot more of that, especially us in the reselling community, right? We don't, a lot of us have quality stuff. A lot of us don't. But there are some that they don't need to be the top, but they bring so much value, right? And so they just bring it out there. And I think that's a testament to the authenticity that people are looking. They're not looking for all everything to be just right. They're looking for people to be real about things, right? And so Chris Voss here talks about, she's right. As you just saw, the beauty of going right after negativity is that it brings us to a safe zone of empathy, right? So you can relate to that person. Now you feel they're being real. Hey, thanks so much for showing us how you failed. Thing. I mean, it's weird. It sounds weird, but that's where we're at. And then says, every one of us has an inherent human need to be understood, to connect with a person across the table. And I, I, I think <laughs> that is so valuable to know. I think we're shifting as a, as a society from this place that we always got to look up to the nines and everything has to be all good and everything has to be fine. And I would say even in the reselling community, one of the best ways for you to make communication and connection to other people is being real about your failures, right? So before, you know, you always worry about, oh, people are going to call me out on this, call me out. That, that's okay. Who cares, right? Because you can negotiate, you can get help, whatever, by just being authentic about things and doing the accusation audit, even on your own business. Mm. So anyways, I don't know everywhere I was going with that, but I wanted to share no, that. That's good. Um, two, two things um, that that kind of reminded me of, and, and I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to say on this, because as I was reading this, even with the labeling thing, like one of the things that popped in my head was something he actually addressed was that's going to bug people. Like people don't want you to like, don't tell me how I feel. Right. And he says, and, and he had like proof and proof and evidence and evidence. People don't notice. He said, people don't even notice that you're doing it. If you do it right. Like if you, if you mentioned something about how somebody's feeling and you're saying, and you label the feelings that it seems like they're having he says, people don't notice and they're not, if you're saying it right, not like, I think you are, or I think you are upset, but you say, it seems like you're pretty upset. People aren't going to react with, don't tell me how I feel, right? When, especially when people ha have a lot of emotions, they're not even going to notice you're doing that if you're empathizing well. So that was just one thing to, to kind of put out there. Cause I'm sure some of our listeners are like, yeah, you got to be careful. If I, if I told my boss that they seemed um, like they were upset, they're going to be really even more upset, right? But if you're if you practice this, practice this, do it right, people aren't even going to notice, right? So that's part of that building the empathy. The other thing is he had a great example of of this in the icebreaker, and I think I think sometimes we could look at the extremes: big business negotiation or a hostage negotiation. But like this is a great example. He says like, okay, I had an icebreaker in my class. Um, he says I had somebody up front. I'm like, all right, I'm I want somebody to come up and try to negotiate and and keep me from killing the hostage, right? And he goes, as soon as I say that, nobody wants to do it. Cause it's like first day of class, right? Nobody wants to go up against like the professional negotiator. And he goes, so then the next thing I say is, and let me just say right off the bat, this is going to go horrible for you. 
right? Like you're not going to win. And second of all, the people who volunteer are probably going to actually get more out of this class than those who don't, right? He says, everybody kind of laughs and chuckles and then immediately hands go up, right? And he was talking about that of like, people don't notice like, so by labeling like, look, I know you guys probably are a little nervous about doing this and, and you should be because it's going to go terribly, right? Like he, he immediately does kind of like the audit trail, right? Like this is going to be bad. You're not going to win. Now people don't, it takes the pressure off of them. They're not like, what if I look bad, right? As soon as he says, it's, you're going to look bad if you come up here, right? It's not going to end well. Immediately that pressure is gone. And then he says, and you'll probably get more out of it, right? And so that's a negotiation skill. If you can kind of find ways of doing that and kind of labeling the very worst that can happen. And that kind of goes back to our four hour work week. That was one of the, the takeaways I got from that. Because he talked about the same thing as if you label the absolute worst things that can happen. All right, let's say I go on this trip um, and I lose my job and my house burns down and this happens and this happens and my dog gets cancer and like, and you list every possible thing that can go happen. Mike, it seems you're super concerned about what's going on. <laughs> so if you, if you were to, to label every possible bad thing that could happen in your life, if you did take this trip, then you start, all those fears kind of go away and it's like, well, realistically, that's probably not going to happen. And if it does happen, then, well, gosh, I mean, I've got insurance and I could get okay, a new I'll job, right? I'll give you a real life scenario. So I'm being real. So I was, I was talking to a mentor and this is when I was reselling. I think I was six months in and I don't share this on the podcast. So this is a, an exclusive, but there was a point in time I was really worried. And cause I'm not an entrepreneur by nature. Like a lot of people are like, put me against the wall and I'll fight harder. And maybe I am, I don't know. But I, I talked about before that I, you know, I tend to think worst case scenario. And I remember going, I'm really worried about this reselling thing. Like, what if Q4 goes bad? What if I spend all this money and then I'm in debt and then I can't pay it and then collections come after me and then I end up homeless. And I remember my mentor looking at me like, Orlando, tell me all the steps it would take for you to get there. Right? So we went through A through Z. Like, this would have to happen and this would have to happen. And then midway, he would, he would go, do you think that's really going to happen? And then I, I'd look at him and go, no, like that's probably, and, and worst case scenario, I can always get a job or worst case scenario. I can always pick up more classes teaching at a college or university, or I could do this or I could do that. And then my fear went away. Mm. Right. And it allowed me to be a better reseller because I knew that if I 10 X stuff, <laughs> I'll still be able to make things happen. Right. And actually, you know, it's funny, Grant Cardone, I, I saw, not a, I can't remember the quote, but he he had mentioned the fact that you're broke, not when you run out of money, but when it's kind of like you you run out of that ability, ability to believe they can still make things happen. Mm. Something to that effect. And I 100% believe that to be true. I think that applies to reselling, being an entrepreneur, anything in life is when you've given all hope and you definitely go to a place that you can't do things that's when you're done. And so bringing out the fear prevents you from getting to that place. So yeah, so I'm, I'm good. That's good. <laughs> I've been good for a while. That's good. Anyways, all right. Just thought I'd share that. That, that was a tough one to share. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's true. I mean, when you can label it and then, yeah. So sometimes you do say, like you said that, like, is this really going to happen? Probably not. But then even if you're to say like, okay, I'm going to put myself in that situation. I've lost everything. All right. Well, what would it look like to rebuild? All right. Like, if the one in a million happens and I lose everything, 
then this is the steps I will take. Now the fear is gone and you move on. So I, I do think that was a good thing to take from that book. Uh, he kind of goes on to, I think, one of the most practical ways. And he kind of showed um, how how there's multiple steps in this and how they all kind of flow together. This like doing the uh, the the audit, um, acquisition audit, doing the, the labeling, doing this kind of this back and forth, back and forth. And one of the things, and I think this is something a lot of people can relate to, is he gives an example of somebody who's on a business trip and his flight got canceled and he has to make it to this place in order to seal this deal. And if he doesn't get there, he's, he's going to lose the contract. And he goes up and the person in front of him at the, at the, the plane you know, booth is like screaming at the person working the, the booth, right? And like, I need tickets. And they're yelling. And the person's like, I can't do anything. I'm sorry. I can't help you. Back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the person like storms off all upset. And then this is what he's following, right? He just heard somebody screaming and yelling and cussing about how they need this ticket and they can't get on this plane and this plane is full and there's no way they can get on the plane. That's the plane he's trying to get a ticket for, right? So instead of just like, this is ridiculous and walking off, he walks up and he's like, ooh, seems like a hectic day, all right? And he starts to to, to, to empathize with this person. Immediately the teller's like, yeah, tell me about it. And it's like, oh, the weather. And he goes step by step on how he's getting information from the person while feeling their pain, right? And, and we do this all the time when we're dealing with tellers, especially if they've just dealt with somebody who's been upset. If you can empathize with them, like even the kind of like rolling your eyes at like the, the previous customer who just like, that kind of stuff shows like, hey, like I feel you, right? Like what's wrong with that person? But it has to be genuine, right? right? Because you've, you've watched those movies where it's like comedy and the person just looks obnoxious because they're really like, whoa. And it's like, no, that doesn't seem real. Right. right. Yeah. And so when you have that genuine, but then the whole time he's doing this, he's actually getting information from her. He's like, man, this weather is crazy, huh? And she's the person at the ticket booth was like, yeah, like it, it's really bad out there. And Well, let me read it. It's yeah, really sure. good. It says, he go, he, he's telling the, the person at the desk, well, it seems like you've been handling the rough day pretty well. I also was affected by the weather delays and missed my connecting flight. Seems like this flight is likely booked solid, but with what you said, maybe someone affected by the weather might miss the connection. Is there any possibility a seat will be open? I mean, he, that's masterful, right? He goes in, he labels it, right? Seems like you've been having a pretty rough day, right? And then, right, he tries to empathize, right? Mm -hmm. I was also affected by the weather delays and missed my connecting flight. And then offers a solution. Then but only based off information she gave because she was like, yeah, there's correct. Some people are even calling because they're not like there's a whole plane that didn't make it and there's other people. And so it's like, ah, possibilities, right? Whereas the previous person is like, what do you mean it's booked? I want tickets, right? And it's like, well, she's not going to help that person, right? Like, because she's not looking for a solution for that person. To me, this is such a big deal. I can't tell you how many times in my life just spending those two minutes to talk to someone Right. It's kind of, you know, it's funny uh, if you watched, uh, no, it wasn't an IG story. Was it? There's a video we did. We went to a thrift store. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. And what was the first thing I, we shared this in a podcast. What was the first thing I did when I walked into that thrift store? Do you remember? I don't remember. Okay. It's so long ago. It was like, I, there's a random guy that came and talked to me, right? This older Filipino gentleman, he came and talked to me and Mike, you know, we're doing this thrift store video. Mike's trying to find oh, stuff, remember, right? Yeah. And I decide not to. Instead, I decided to talk to this guy. And he was he was an employee from at the store that I shall not be named who knew me and hadn't seen me in a while. And he just, we just struck up a conversation. And guess what? In that conversation, towards the end, he had he had ended up, I think he we worked out a deal for me to get something for cheaper, or 
or there was something that I didn't, we weren't able to know about. And he told, Hey, this just came in, blah, 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 blah. Right. And ultimately spending you, sometimes we think about like, we're in a hustle. We got to move. We, we don't have time to talk to people. Right. This, you know, this individual, right. You know, he was trying to get this upgrade on his flight seat. Right. But he probably wasn't in a hurry too, right? Bad weather. Things are terrible. You really don't want to talk to anybody. But taking the time to talk to people, you never know what doors will open. And I, I, I will say, you know, in my observation, it seems <laughs> that in the reselling community, a lot of us are very introverted, right? We don't like to talk to people, right? Some of us are very extroverted and, you know, we're able to broker deals, make negotiations and do bulk buys and so on. But I really want to encourage those of you that aren't the, you know, you walk in a room, you know how to work a room kind of person to still at least take the few minutes to just ask the questions and see what comes of that conversation. And the more you do it, I guarantee you there will be benefits. And I'm not talking about being manipulative because sometimes you're just going to talk to someone and you will get absolutely nothing from it except the ROI of that individual knowing that you cared about their situation and empathizing with them, which to me is a great ROI. It's still a win. But I just I wanted to I wanted to land it on this one because it wasn't just even tactical. It was just being human, and and in the end, it ended up being a win for him. Yep. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I mean, I saw this today. I was at a thrift store, and the person like one register over from me was trying to buy like a blanket, and the label, the tag was supposed to be like stapled on with two staples, but it was just like hanging on with one staple, and the lady was like, "We can't sell this to you. Like, it has to be stapled on both places." Like. And the lady was like, but that's how it was. Like when I picked it up, like that's and like, I'm sorry, like we could put it on hold for you and you can buy it tomorrow. And the lady just like shoved her cart, like slammed into something oh and walked goodness. out. And so I was able to kind of like, just like eye contact with the lady who was checking me out and kind of just be like, whoa, right. To be real, to be honest, I probably connected realistically more with the the customer in some ways. Yeah. But at the same time, if I was the worker and it's like, this is the rule I can't like, I you can connect with both. and so. To me, it made sense of like, I'm going to make this connection with the person who's my cash register so that they can kind of like have the laugh with me like, gosh, man, some people, because then what if something was going on with my stuff and I could potentially work something out, right? Like where it's like, if I'm just like, I can't believe you wouldn't sell that to her. I've just lost all possibility, right? So you've got to, you got to be willing to work that. And, and going back to the idea of being introverted, he says this, with that in mind, I encourage you to take the risk of sprinkling these in every conversation you have. I promise you will, will feel awkward and artificial at first, but keep at it. Learning to walk felt awkward, uh, felt awfully strange too. So just trying to label, right? Like you're going to feel really weird if you're listening to somebody having a conversation and then you label their feelings. Um, it's going to feel weird at first, but the more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. And the better you get at it, the easier it's going to be. Um, and then one of the things we didn't talk about specifically, but it is kind of on his key ideas here is after you label something, pause, he says, um, pause after you label a barrier or mirror statement, let it sink in. Don't worry. The other party will fill the silence. And I promise you that's true. If you're having a conversation with somebody and you do something, or you label something like that and you pause, the, everybody wants to talk. Everybody wants to fill uh, empty space. Right. And if you let if you go silent and that's one of the reasons we do like the silent method is people are going to fill that space. People, they don't want to feel awkward as awkward as you feel like sitting there in that pause. They do, too. And they're going to feel it. They're going to say something there. And that might just be more information for you that you can now understand their emotions better. Or um, they're going to say, like, 
yeah, I do feel that way because maybe they have to process what they're feeling because they haven't actually labeled it yet. And then it says this, label your counterparts fears to diffuse their power. We all want to talk about happy stuff. Remember, the faster you interrupt action in your counterparts amygdala, the part of the brain that generates fear, the faster you can generate feelings of safety, well-being, and trust. Going back to that, like, accusation. Um, uh, audit? The, yeah, the accusation audit. Going back to that or just the, like, whatever things are going, the sooner you label it, the faster you can move on. But some people want to just jump right into, like, talking about happy stuff. And we've talked about that in the past, too. Like, when you're going through something bad in your life and... There's some people who want to fix it by like, just like, well, but think of all the happy things and they just want to talk no, about happy that, stuff. That it doesn't always worst. help. Right? That is the, I, no, you have to be willing to let that individual feel that pain. Yep. I, I say that all the time because, you know, actually I ran into somebody the other day and they're telling me a terrible situation they're going through and they just dismiss it like, oh, I'll be okay. I'm like, no, you're not, you know, I shouldn't have said you're not okay, but I should have said it seems you're not okay. Right. You're, you're dealing with a really terrible situation. And then I remember they said, yeah, this is terrible. I hate this. And I said, you know what? You have you have the right to feel that because everything that's happened to you right now, you don't deserve. And so and, and it ended up being a good conversation. Right. So. I wanted to share the last part, and I don't know if you wanted to end it no. this way, but. So he's laying the groundwork here. Don't misinterpret this chapter as it's all about feelings and empathy. It's laying out the groundwork for negotiation, right? This He talks about that. This is a tool, not necessarily the ultimate strategy, mm. right? This builds into the ultimate strategy. So be aware of that with this chapter, because you might have listened to this whole episode and you might have been like, well, but I can't by empathizing and labeling. I'm not going to always there, there has to be more to it. And there is. Right. And he'll talk about that in the coming chapters and be really practical. But this is what I wanted to end on here. And I've said this already and I'll keep saying that whenever you work with anybody, remember, you're dealing with a person. This is what he says. You're dealing with a person who wants to be appreciated and understood. And we all want that. And so if you can go into any negotiation with that understanding, in my experience and what Chris Voss is saying, and I, I believe Mike would say the same, chances are that you will end up never splitting the difference and with that being said make sure to be real be relevant and be reselling peace, peace.